This podcast is brought to you by Craft Beer and Brewing Magazine for those that love to make and drink great beer. To learn more or to subscribe, visit beerandbrewing.com or find us on social media at Craft Beer Brew. For this week's episode of the podcast, we head back to Mexicali, Mexico for a panel discussion on lager brewing that I moderated one evening after judging for the Copa Baja beer competition. Joining me for the conversation were Ashley Carter of Denver's Beerstadt Lager House, Ryan Brooks of San Diego's South Norte, and Jeff Bagby of Green Cheek Beer. That's right. The news dropped earlier this week that Green Cheek has taken over the Oceanside, California location that Bagby has called home. And Jeff and Dandy are joining the Green Cheek team. Kind of cool. Anyway, all three members of this panel are experienced and award-winning lager brewers with their own specific approaches to making lager beer. Uh, inspired by our location, we focused the conversation on brewing Mexican pale and dark lagers. And the, the topic of corn and specialty malts and lager brewing, something, something we haven't talked about much on the podcast, uh, figures well into this conversation. It was a bit of a raucous environment, of course. Out there in the patio of the uh, Fauna Tasting Room, we were all a few beers in by the time we got started. I mean, it's an occupational hazard, right? We all do it. Um, but the conversation was too fun and informative not to share with you all. We'll jump into that discussion in a minute. But first, G&D Chillers, they always strive to build great chillers. Partner with them as you build great beer. Kevin Toger from Bearded Iris Brewing says, quote, G&D Chillers have been a valuable partner throughout our growth. They build high quality equipment and they know their machines extremely well. Most importantly, their customer service is best in class, which is a huge value add to our internal teams that manage these critical support systems, end quote. Choose GD Chillers on your next expansion or brewery startup and receive one free year of remote control and monitoring of your new GD chiller. Also, turnkey brewery systems, production line design services, retrofitting processing systems, Pro Brew can do all of this and more with any brewery, old or new, small or large. With an expansive list of breweries already served, their engineering team prides itself on providing a truly turnkey solution built for your entire production line that can be easily customized to fit your operation. For more information, fill out their contact form at www.probrew.com or email contact us at probrew.com to learn exactly how they can take your operations to the next level. Probrew, brew your beer. And Old Orchard has supplied flavored craft juice concentrate blends to over 46 states for the production of fruit-forward beer, cider, seltzer, wine, spirits, and more. By partnering with some of the biggest names in the craft brewing landscape, Old Orchard has become a go-to source of fruit-forward ingredients. To learn more and request your free samples, head on over to oldorchard.com slash brewer. Now, the panel discussion with Ashley Carter, Jeff Bagby, and Ryan Brooks. You are all craft brewers. You have all brewed other styles, and you have all gravitated to lager as a style, which historically within American craft beer was not a popular beer style amongst craft brewers. What led you to focus on lagers and, and with the kind of passion and focus that you do? And uh, you know, what is it about that beer style that made it a compelling thing for you to focus on? Maybe you can start, Ashley. Uh, yeah, um, for me, you know, lager, uh, while in the craft realm, it's definitely uh, not as popular. Uh, amongst beer drinkers in the entire world, it is the most popular beer style there is. So it just seemed to me, you know, especially uh, the thing that I like to drink the most, so I want to share that with other people. But it seems to be the place that, you know, everybody can kind of come together, and it doesn't really need an instruction booklet to to be able to be understood. And so the idea that you're drinking beer like we're doing right now, and we're talking about beer right now, but be able to drink beer and talk about other things, your family, and have it be something you can enjoy in mass quantities and kind of as a social a social thing is what I really love about drinking lager. About making lager, I really like the uh, idea of using a limited set of ingredients and using a process and having the process really drive uh, specific flavors rather than, you know, a complex set of ingredients. I've always just been a classic beer style brewer, um, made lager for a long time, 
and seeing the response over the last, well, nine years that we've been open um, to the loggers, not only that we've made, but the rest of the craft brewing community, especially meeting this one next to me and uh, spending a lot of time with them and in their brewery. And the first time I tasted their beers, I was blown away and it made me want to learn more and make my loggers better and better. And I believe we have over time and our what we've brewed um, uh, lager style wise has expanded and the crowds have responded. So we're going to keep doing that. Yeah, similar to what Ashley said, we, I want to make beer uh, to what I was doing down here in Mexico. If it's not drinking craft beer, you're drinking loads of Tecate Roja, you're drinking Kawamas. So my passion was like, hey, let's make a craft version of what you're going to be drinking, like the everyday blue collar beer. Part, other part of that was when I was 21 years old, I'd go to Pizza Port Carlsbad and drink Amigo Lager. And I knew that the craft guys could still make awesome lagers. And so that was one other good moment in my life where I'm like, wow, you can still be crafty and make rad lagers. On that note, Ryan, what defines craft lager for you? Uh, because just, you very specifically made the point of using the word craft well, I, around it. I guess you know, it's not the ma- macro big giant breweries that are dumbing down flavors with a bunch of water and using cheaper ingredients. I'm sure Jeff used rad Pilsner malt and and not watering down techniques, not high gravity brewing and and independently owned. Jeff, are there tenants to you that define craft lager as opposed to any uh, other form of lager? I mean, uh, similar to long lines what Ryan was saying, I guess. Um, to me, craft brewing in general is, is a lot smaller batches and all Honestly, I think a lot harder to to create something that's that's clean, that's that's truly good, good, well-made lager, brewed lager, and yeah, to me, I think that's the difference. I think you know, mass-produced lager, you you've got you've got many more systems in place, many more um, things that you can be more consistent. It's harder to be consistent when you're when you're brewing on a smaller scale with smaller equipment. Um, you know, my, I have limitations with, with the equipment that I have, and I've learned over time how to recreate, be consistent, and create, you know, really flavorful that I feel lager off of a system that was not built to make lager. So. Sure, sure. Ashley, uh, over the last number of years, the Brewers Association, which once defined craft in a way that excluded ingredients like corn, has now changed that and opened up the, their definition of craft. Not that it's the only one that out there that exists, but their definition to embrace corn, which is certainly a part of a lager tradition in the Americas. Um, how does ingredient focus within lager brewing um, define it in a craft way for you? How do you, how do you think about this? I don't necessarily think that ingredients d- necessarily define it. I think it's more about a, a mindset. And I don't necessarily even really like the moniker of craft personally because I think it kind of lends itself to uh, being something that's not exactly fully, fully formed. I look at, you know, the brewers up here and the brewers out there and we are all professional brewers. And while I like the idea of craft, you know, saying that we're not macro, I don't know that that tells the whole the whole story about who we are or what we are or what we do. And like every single one of these guys up here and the brewers out there, you know, they could take any brew house and be able to make a professional quality beer on. And so I don't know that it's necessarily like ingredient driven. It's more of a mindset of who you're making beer for, who you want to connect with when you're making beer, who you want to drink beer with, and, you know, uh, kind of embracing that kind of small business attitude and having a, a hand on it. I could, you know, make more beer more efficiently, but that's not fun to me. I'm a, I'm a brewer. I like making beer. And so everything I do every day is is driven towards because I like doing it and not because it, you know. It's the punk rock mentality. It's, <laughs> I hate that. But yes, it's the <laughs> punk rock mentality. <laughs> yes, but it is. It's handmade. It's, it's mine. It's something I like to do. So, Sure, that, that hands-on, that DIY, we, we make this kind of a process. Now, when it comes to lagers and the styles that you choose to brew, um, finding inspiration for that becomes a big part of it. Um, there are American lager traditions that, are, of course, have come from Europe. Uh, you all all reference both European traditions 
or even, you know, traditions here in Mexico, which are also descended from some of those European traditions. None of which, by the way, are really that old when we break it all down. We're talking 1840 to the present. So, uh, you know, this era of modern pale loggers is a pretty young one, all things considered. Um, but where do you, you know, as you start thinking about how you are going to make lager, where do you search for inspiration? There are ideas of authenticity, you know, however, there are lots of interpretations as to what that is. How did you each decide on identities for your own lager programs? Um, I would say kind of like I do with all styles of beer that I make. I try to go to the origin and taste and hang out with the people that are making it if possible and just continue to work on the process and get the beer where I feel like it's the closest representation of what I'm trying to, to recreate. So it, inspiration is, is, for me, is built just on that. Like, I don't, I don't I'm not trying but to... how do you choose? How do you choose which one? Well, I'll tell you right. one beer that we made because together. Because there are lots chose. of really great pale lagers <laughs> and pilsners, you know, in Germany. And the yeah. different regions will have different iterations of those. How did True. you decide what so, was going to inspire you? Uh, we all took a tr trip to Prague one time and sat down on Ufleku and drank a bunch of Tamabe and sat there and were like, this beer's awesome. We've never had a beer like this. This is what we need to make. So we went and did it. <laughs> so like I said, um, inspiration on, on things like that is, is to me, with all beer styles, is, is going there and speaking with the brewers and, and learning and going, oh, okay, I never really thought about that and trying to apply it back home with my system and my ingredients and what's available to me to try and recreate that process. I'm not trying to be innovative in what I do. I'm trying to replicate and pay kind of homage to those that have done it before and maybe I can do it just as good or get close and expose people to those styles in the way that I think are best replicated and say, oh yeah, this is where that came from. It tells a story, you know? I love beer that tells a story. Gives people an opportunity to identify with something or maybe they have gone to that country or that city or that brewery even and they're like, hey, that reminds me of that. That reminds me of that to like, you know, as, as Ashley was saying, like a social thing like that, if somebody walks in from out of town or from another country and comes into our, our bar and tries a beer and goes, that reminds me of home or that reminds me of this trip I took. Like to me, that's, that's a win. That's, that's what I'm trying to do. I'm trying to create positive experiences and ones that build and, and relate to others. Ryan, when uh, came to inspiration? Uh, mine's not as sexy as that, but it's, it's my honest truth is hanging out on rooftops and, and shady places in Tijuana and just drinking Tecate Roja. And I'm like, I want to make a beer that's, that's similar to this, or maybe like when you're on the beach drinking Pacifico, something real light and easy to drink. But the coolest thing I think I learned is taking every bottle of Mexican lager possible that I could find on the shelf and bringing it to the lab and checking out final gravity, starting gravity, and really learning the insides because I was driven by like, all oh, these have to be super dry, refreshing. They need to be in like 1.8 Play-Doh and 2 Play-Doh. All the ones that I was shocked with, they're like 2.9, 3 Play-Doh. They're very sweet, but they're balanced enough with a little bit of hops. And so that was kind of like my, my way of learning how to make the beer that I made was getting inspired by just drinking a lot of beer in TJ and then uh, recreating it just by looking at the analytics from a lab point. Sure. Ashley, where, uh, how'd you all determine your specific lager focus? I don't make anything I don't want to drink. I only make, I got to, opening a brewery is very hard. I do not recommend doing it. Um, unless you really do want to do it, but, um, it's too hard to do if you're not making the thing you want to make every day and drink every day. And, I was driven by, you know, lager beer when I was a young brewer because of how technical they were. And I was just trying to, like, prove that you you could just pay attention and use a small set of ingredients and, you know, follow fermentation. And I just kind of fell in love with that idea of, like, taking care of beer. And so when I got the chance to do it ourselves, you know, it's the beers that I'm inspired of, but it, it's that community thing. It's that sitting down with people, what beer do I want to drink? The absolute most of and so I've always had you know my husband and I who opened the brewery we've always had the idea that we if you're not making your favorite beer 
what are you doing? If you have to look somewhere else to find your favorite beer, uh, why are you not looking in to try and make it in your own brewery, even if you don't necessarily have all the tools? So we're always, the goal is to make our favorite beer, and we make our favorite beer. And so now, you know, the next closest thing is getting on an airplane and going to Germany uh, to get that beer. And even then, now, with all the equipment that we have and all the processes we have, it's, uh, I think I'd rather just drink beer at my brewery with my friends. Um, sometimes, except for that I have to work when I'm there. So I like to go there for that. But um, making the beer that I like to drink the most is kind of the inspiration. We'll be back with more of the discussion in a minute. But first, streamline efficiency with Omega Yeast's Diastole Knockout Series. The DKO series is comprised of eight familiar yeast strains engineered to knock out the formation of diastole before it starts. The strains you know now better. Available now for made-to-order pitchables at any volume. Contact Omega Yeast today at omegayeast.com. Also, ABS Commercial has been a full-service brewery outfitter for the past 10 years. They're proud to offer brew houses, tanks, keg washers, and preventative maintenance parts to brewers across the country, as well as equipment for distilling, cider making, wine making, and more. They know the ins and outs of the brewing and installation process and can design the perfect setup for you whether you're just starting out or looking to expand. Contact them today at sales at abs-commercial.com to discuss your customized brewery needs. ABS Commercial, we are brewers. Now, back to the conversation. Ashley, why don't we follow up on that? You mentioned earlier that these guys could make any beer on any brew house because they're great brewers. You know, lager brewing has a tradition of specific equipment, whether it's tanks, whether it's brew house, um, for, for specific processes, decoction, step mashing, and whatnot. Um, talk a little bit about designing a brew house to brew lager, and then maybe we could also then from there talk about how you can accomplish some of those same types of processes or uh, approximate them using some other equipment, but that may not be you know accessible or the more accessible to to brewers that don't have purpose built systems. Great. Uh, I like your question, but I'm going to answer it the opposite way. Um, all that stuff is super sexy, but if you just pay attention to fermentation and have really healthy yeast, um, you can and can knock out super cold. Those are really like the three things that you need you need to be able to do in order to make great beer. It's kind of like Italian food. You just need really high quality ingredients. You need a little bit of technique, and you need just a couple of things to do it precisely right. Now, if you want to get a little bit crazy and psycho and things like that, like I like to be. Uh, you know, adding decoction. It's all these little tiny elements that kind of build on each other. When I think about my beer, I'm not sure that there's one specific thing, whether it's a lager tank, uh, our flotation tank, decoction, or, you know, we have a, a external calandria. I'm not sure which one of those things, if we took one away, you'd be able to tell, but it's the culmination of all those things that make my beer tastes like my beer and the things that I enjoy about them. But I don't know that they're necessary to do that. First things first, I would get a cold liquor tank and be able to knock out cold, uh, have healthy yeast. After that, decoction, then a lager tank, and then the ability to get it super bright and filtered uh, to brilliance. Those are, those are to me the things in order are are the important things in order. But at the end of the day, you don't need any of that. You just need healthy yeast and a way to get it cold and to follow fermentation. Yeah, Jeff, you, you make lager on a system that's also flexible and makes other styles of beer. You know, are there some things in using that that you found make better lager? Some of the, the ways you found to use that brew house? Uh, I mean, I, I have a single infusion ale brewery and I have cylindrical conicals and when I started making more and more lager and and looking at little tiny things that I could do, there's there's not a ton. I can't I can't decoct. I can do like a single step, you know, and that's rough at best. Uh, so I started paying attention to things like water, um, pH. Um, in, when you say paying attention to, what does that mean? I started testing my water a lot more. Uh, when I grew up as a young brewer and predominantly making ale in Southern California where I live, uh, making hoppy pale ales and IPAs and even stouts and browns and other things like even Belgian beer, the, the water profile lended itself to those beers and responded really well. It did not respond well to most German styles and most lagers. And so reading, learning, talking with people and finding out um, not only what 
we really had for lager or for water. I knew it was really hard and, and high in sulfate, but also high in everything else, high in chloride, high in magnesium, high in, in calcium chloride, like just huge TDS. So learning like, hey, yeah, loggers don't really like TDS, that. total dissolved solids. Yes. <laughs> so learning how first I could handle that or change that, and then seeing the response in the beer. And, you know, things like Ashley mentioned filtration and brilliance. I really, truly believe that's a very key component to the, at least the, the final part of lager or a lot of lo styles of lager. And once I started learning about water and pH and what it did for yeast viability and fermentation and even final clarification of a beer, I was, I was really happy because <laughs> some of my early lager filtrations were horrible and just took forever. And once I learned a few things about that to improve fermentation and to improve water quality that was um, positive for uh, lager brewing, um, it, it helped immensely. Just those things because my brew house, the physical equipment, I couldn't change and I couldn't, you know, I couldn't just go buy a louder t or a mash ton. I couldn't just go buy lagering tanks and, and talking with people like her, like, yeah, you know, there's, there's other things. <laughs> and sure enough, and our lagers gotten better and better from finding those components that you can change in your brew house um, that are not that difficult, that don't cost that much. Um, you know, but every brew house is different. Everybody's water source is different. And being a good brewer is being able to find out how to utilize what you have and still turn out and make great beer. Sure. How about you, Ryan? Yeah, real similar to Jeff. The biggest thing I learned was uh, treating the water. <clears throat> we went from brewing with San Diego water that's awful and just char uh, carbon filtered to using uh, deionized tanks, and that instantly made the beer a lot better. Uh Pitching ice cold and fermenting ice cold made a big difference, and, and a pitch rate. Uh, I think a lot of brewers thinking like, "Oh, well, this is what we do for ales." You have to double or almost triple that for lagers to make it work out the right way. Uh, another big thing was a constant uh, focus on troop drops and getting the yeast off the beer. A lot of italicis is in beer because they let their lagering with so much yeast matter in, in the tank. So if you have the uh, the capacity to move it to a different fermenter or a, or a uh, horizontal tank, that's great. But just getting that yeast off of the beer helps a lot for the cleanliness. Um, and then time. Be patient. Let it, let it do its thing. It's called lager for a reason. Sure. In many lager styles, not all. Some, some uh, you know, lagers are stronger, darker, deeper. But many lager styles that are popular with audiences today are pale lagers. Ingredients can be a you know, piece of that. Obviously, you've talked about water already. But malt and hops can also be, uh, they are more apparent. It's a reason that brewers consider lagers these beers of truth, um, you know, because there's little to hide there. Um, the quality of those ingredients, the way that those flavors convey is a very important thing. Um, why don't you each talk about how you select ingredients, and specifically in pale lagers, um, and how you think about choosing those ingredients, uh, what each of those convey, and how you may have changed some of how you've used some of those ingredients over the, over the years. First of all, we should make a beer called Stronger, Darker, Deeper, obviously. <laughs> <laughs> it's a great beer name, Jamie. Um, you know, I've already copyrighted it. <laughs> you've already copyrighted it. It's already done. Uh, you know, I think, you know, when it comes to ingredients, again, you know, finding the best ingredients for the beer. And, and it's kind of hard right now with ingredient prices getting much higher you know we used to be able to get uh you know pilsner malt for 62 cents a pound which was considered even pricey then but now it's up to like 89 92 cents a pound um, but even then you have to realize that beer ingredients even when they're expensive are still relatively uh inexpensive we're not making ipa um even our pricey hops are not that pricey and i think it's just kind of having the expectation of of uh, charging what you need to in order to make the beer that you want to make. So I kind of like start with that backwards. So I use Weirman malt. I think it's the finest European malt that you can buy. It's extremely consistent. Um, we use a heirloom variety called Barca, and I really enjoy the kind of uh, malty character that we get from that. I do believe in European hops, um, but if my European hops stop tasting like my European hops, if my middle fruit stops tasting lemony, citric, dusty, then I will try to find something else that fulfills that 
uh, that that criteria. Um, I'm not tied to these things specifically because they're European or because I'm making these styles of beers. I like them because I think they're the highest quality thing that I can buy to make the beer that I want to make. Um, so again, ingredients, you know, even if you're trying to use a new ingredient, instead of just picking what everybody else is doing, really going and doing some tests and finding what makes that beer taste like you, like you want it to and not just looking at the, at the cost of it. And that can be difficult. Again, everything's getting very expensive right now. But, um, you know, I think for us, we don't do much with our water because we want our beer to kind of still taste like it was made at our place. We can import everything else, but our water is our water. Now we have pretty nice water to begin with, so that helps. But again, I was just say you got a lot better water than most of us. <laughs> yeah, we have really nice water. It's not like we live in like I don't even know a bunch of places. Um, but even then, you know, making those investments and in things early. Uh, yeah, but I think just choosing a quality ingredient and really looking at what your raw materials are and, and changing as they go and not being tied to something just because it says or claims to be one thing and actually doing the experiment in your own brew house or doing it as collaborations with people to find out interesting things about new ingredients that are that are coming out. So, Yeah, well, um, I've always been someone, uh, it's like, Ashley said, use the ingredients that are the freshest and the best for you and what you want to make. It's pretty simple. Open a bag of hops. If it doesn't smell right to you, then hopefully you've got something else that you can use. As Ashley said, that's difficult when you are dealing with high costs of everything. Um, it's not always an, an option. Um, and when it comes to malt, that's a tougher thing. I think that can become personal to somebody's taste and liking. Some people like to use the ingredients that are, are grown or, or um, made as close to them as possible. To me, that doesn't always lend to the best beer, but maybe you can still do other things in your brewery to make those ingredients work better. Or, you know, if you do have hops that aren't, aren't as bright and, and fresh, that you can use them in a different way to, or on a different style of beer that you, where you're just trying for bitterness, you don't really, you're not really looking for aroma and flavor and, and, you know, things like that. But yeah, I just use, use what you think is best. And like Ashley said, experiment and find, find what works for what you're trying to do. What are some of the things that you really find yourself attracted to in, in the ingredient side? Um, Malt and hops. Uh, Malton hops. I mean, I, I'm very similar. Ashley, I love Wireman. We use a ton of it. I use three of their different Pilsner malts. I use their Munichs. I use their Caramunich. I use their Floor, floor Malted Dark is an awesome malt that I actually learned about from her. Uh, <laughs> so, um, yeah, uh, Hopside, um, there are some really nice you, European wait, varieties. When you say you use three different Pilsner malts, why would you use three different Pilsner malts? <laughs> Honestly, and what do each of those three do for you? So that's a very good question. Um, one, because of availability. Uh, I was trying to get... Uh, we've used Weirman Pilsner, we use Weirman Premium Pilsner, and we use Weirman Barca Pilsner. So three different types of Weirman Pilsner malt. They all do a little bit different thing. The premium is really, really light colored. And depending on the style that, that we're making, also historically, one of our, our Hellas was originally a collaboration with another brewery. And I had never used Barca and they didn't have either of the other two Pilsner malts, but they had Barca, so I got it and we loved it. So our Hellas has always been made with Barca. <laughs> so some things are just kind of happen, lucky accident or works or whatever. Um, but yeah, uh, those are some of my favorite ingredients. When it comes to hops, um, although there's a lot of nice European varieties grown in the US, I still believe the European ones, to me, help replicate the styles overseas better than what's grown in the US. So I'm going to jump on that Weirman train as well. But with my, uh, with my Mexican lager, uh, trying to emulate the big guys, the big guys aren't using Weirman in their beers. So I don't need to go that heavy with it. But I, I do think that it's a light, a light touch of that good German Pilsner malt does help bring in a little bit of the kind of honey, honey sweetness or just malt complexity. Um, I learned the hard way by when we couldn't get it one time. I had to use an American Pilsner malt, and it was dr drastically different, even at you know, 20, 30% of your, of your grist. And so, drastically how? Uh, it tasted like uh, peanut shells. 
Peanut shells. Yeah, peanut shells is a good way to describe it. Uh, real nutty, just not in a pleasant way. Yeah. Not refined and, and soft and elegant. It was just like rough and raw and nutty. Even at a small amount, of, you know, 20%, 30% of the grist. And yeah, I learned the hard way on that one. But hops, uh, my beer is only 10 IBUs, so I just need a tiny bit of bittering in there just to, just to get the balance and let the water rock it and the yeast and fermentation do everything else. But uh, the ingredients, you guys talked all about hops and malt. Uh, me, it's, it's, it's water and, and fermentation, getting the, the right yeast. I went through about four different yeast strains until the one I picked was the one I needed to use. And really, that's, that's you know, like you're dealing with four different kids. You know, they all act different at different temperatures, pitch rates. Uh, they like to be lagered longer. They like to be pampered. They like to be, you know, taken off the, the cone a little bit. So that, that was my biggest learning thing was, ingredient-wise, was uh, the yeast. I went, yeah, four. <laughs> four different ones. To, uh, four different yeasts. Yeah. And it was like because of, oh, ease. E- everyone in, around San Diego had 3470. So you start with that. You get it from uh, Doug Hasker. <laughs> and uh, that works great. That's a great. And then, then you want to, oh, everyone's winning with Augustiner, so you try that. But then I'm making a Mexican lager, so you go with Modelo. And that was the one we sold was, was the best for the beer. Sure. You know, does the, you're talking about mall choice. Does the process for your mash impact that in any specific way? You know, in terms uh, of. In the beginning, no, because I had no. Right, open, because you, you want to leave this a little beginning. sweeter there, right? You know, yeah. you want. You want this to finish. It was mash temperature and single infusion. I couldn't okay. do much. I couldn't do decoction. I couldn't do step mashing. But when I would contract this beer at other places and had the opportunity to, and we did that, it was miles different. And it was it was a good learning experience. Saying, "Hey, this is what needs to finish at on your system with these steps. What are we going to do?" And it was a, a learning curve. How did that change? What were some of the big things? Um, that's a really good question. A higher mash temperature, really. Yeah, like a lot higher. Yeah, so you do your normal protein rest in the 120s, and then we'd probably go up to like 155. And in single infusion, we didn't have to go that high. In terms of you know maintaining balance and sweetness, you know through that kind of mash process, is there anything, you know, any tricks that you uh, use, Jeff, on your single infusion system? Um, well, again, like Ryan said, it kind of comes down to yeast and and what it likes, and you kind of learn, you know, like. Like he said too, it's it's, it's kind of like a child. It's going to do what it's going to do on some things, and it's going to like some things, and it's not going to like others. And that goes with temperature. That goes with time. That goes with sitting under uh, however many barrels of of wort and and beer at some point. Who likes that? Who doesn't? How long do they like it? When do they start kicking off things? When do they reabsorb sulfur? When do they not? When do they just kick off mean mounts of sulfur? How long does that happen? Um, you know, when do you close, when do you close it? Do you spund it? Do you, you know, all of those things are trial and error with the strain that you have. Um, we work with Augustiner at my brewery because we always have, (laughs) it's just kind of what we did. And I learned how to get it to do what I wanted it to do. And once I figured that out, we just kept going with it. So yeah, but you know, thinking about making a a Mexican lager with Augustiner versus making a German style Pilsner or Helles with the same yeast. There's different things that we do in regards to time, temperature, pH, water that help recreate those styles more in their own vein. So they, they are different and they are more true to their heritage and their style. So it just takes time and messing around with it. Are there some things that, some of the specific things that you found where you know, your Augustiner yeast works differently than some of the other yeast. Like, yeah, it kicks off a ton of sulfur if you don't. If you, do, well, it can during its first fermentation, and we ferment it cooler than I think most people do, and so it does in the beginning. But if I if I let it kind of sit at firm temp, we fer, we ferment it at forty eight degrees, and it kicks off a lot of sulfur during that first part. Um, but we don't usually let it get higher than 48 degrees ever in its life. So we give it, we just give it more time and we don't close, we don't cap the tank. I don't have spunding valves. So I, you know, I'll use, I can use a, a bucket of water and put the blow off tube way down on the bottom and that'll displace and, and make a little more pressure on the tank. But you just gotta watch it and literally smell it. And I just know when it's like, okay, yeah, I can close that arm and it's gonna build up 
uh, enough pressure and the yeast is still happy enough to go, yes, I'll take that sulfur back. And then you have this clean, bright, beautiful beer. But it took forever to learn <laughs> when those points were of when to get rid of that, that sulfur and when you still had kind of acceptable amount of sulfur because, you know, there is good sulfur in lager. There should be. There is. Yeah. There absolutely is. <laughs> we'll continue that thought in a minute. But first, SS Brewtech was founded by a group of home and craft beer brewers dedicated to bringing an engineering-first approach to brewery equipment. SS Brewhouses are used to formulate new beer recipes at some of the world's greatest breweries and are the cornerstone of many local breweries. To learn more about SS Brewtech's innovation list, head on over to ssbrewtech.com. And have you heard of Christian Hansen? They're the fermentation experts with over 100 years of experience in dairy and wine. And they're now bringing that knowledge of microbes to brewers with their smart bev range of frozen liquid yeast and freeze-dried bacteria. This portfolio allows for consistent performance at the brewery and produces a range of high-quality brews. Reimagine what your beer can be. Go to chr-hansen.com to learn more on the SmartBev line of products. Also, the entire craft beer industry is coming together for the 2024 California Craft Beer Summit in Sacramento, March 12th through 14th. The event happens once a year, provides a unique opportunity to learn from the industry's top brewers and industry leaders. Bring your whole team and level up your knowledge, skills, and expertise of craft beer. Go to cacraftbeersummit.com for more info and grab your tickets today. Now, Back to the panel. Ashley, how's your, since we're talking about fermentation process now, um, talk to us about the, the your Bierstadt fermentation process, how you all manage, uh, you know, and keep your yeast uh, happy, healthy, and reabsorbing sulfur. So I use a 3470. I'm a big uh, fan of it. I like the sulfur character of it. Um, we have a little bit different design brewery than a lot of people. We don't actually use cylindroconicals. Uh, so we have kind of a slight advantage in that way. Um, yeast in our brewery never gets under pressure uh, because of how we have to move. Our, our, actually, our tanks are they're called dish cones. They actually have a dish in them and a standpipe. So in order to harvest yeast, I actually have to move the beer off of the yeast. So it kind of keeps me very honest about how long yeast is there. It keeps me very honest about how much uh, we're pitching. It keeps me very honest about not trying to stretch it too thin or, or try to um, make two beers out of one when I really can't. So in that way, we're, we're very lucky. I think that like um, what I'm thinking about yeast and sulfur, first of all, sulfur is a good thing. Uh, the right kind of sulfur. You want to think about like a flinty SO2, kind of that first bit of struck match. Like that to me in a German beer is like that signifies freshness. And if you ever have a fresh Augustiner Hell, that is one sulfury son of a bitch. Like, it is very sulfury. Um, the wrong kind of sulfur is that eggy thing, that thing that you're getting during fermentation. As long as that's blowing off, as long as that's coming out of solution, it's not staying in the beer. And so when you're taking a lot of time, whether or not you want to cap it or not, it's knowing when that sulfur is no longer that eggy sulfur and keeping that really nice. So it's, it's less about it absorbing bad sulfur. Once the sulfur is in there, the only way to get it out is to scrub it. So you have to be a little bit careful. Another way is uh, if you run it through a filter, that will remove some of the sulfur as well. But if you have some of that eggy sulfur in there, the only way to get rid of it is to actually is to scrub it out. Um, but as far as our fermentation process, I'm a big, long, slow uh, person. We ferment it 47 and a half or eight and a half degrees C, uh, and we keep it there for a very long time. And um, there's a book, Textbook of Brewing by Jean de Clerc, and basically your primary fermentation should take 10 to 12 days. And if it takes much longer than that, uh, then you should turn the temperature up. If it takes less time than that, then you should turn your temperature down. And while it seems very like technical and it should be like, like very regimented, it's actually not. There's a lot more feeling. There's a lot more touchiness that goes into it. It's about understanding your yeast and about how it works in your brew house. So there's not a real way to... to to give somebody a direct path. I mean, again, all these things are predicated, uh, like Ryan said, like on having enough healthy yeast, pitching enough two times, three times in some cases, what you're pitching for an ale um, to even start thinking about fermenting as cold as we like to ferment it. It's like an art as much as it is a science. Yeah. It is as much of an art as a science. It's understanding how that fermentation changes, you know, day to day and when it becomes 
different than it was in those week-long periods where it, it significantly changes. So I'm about two and a half weeks or so at fermentation temperature, and then I slowly start to step it down uh, to about 40 degrees where I keep it for about 10 days or so and make sure there's no diacetyl. As long as there's not, then I step it down again. It pretty much takes me almost 30 days to get down to zero degrees Celsius, and then I let it sit there for at least another four or five weeks at zero degrees or minus one C uh, if I can. Um, but yeah, that's basically our but fermentation. But there's no diacetyl rest there then? No diacetyl rest. I don't think and any of us same, here yeah. do diacetyl. This is a very I think we're on the same school. This is yeah. a very unique panel here. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I started out as a home brewer, and so you hear all these things as a home brewer. And you, okay, you got to ramp it up. Now, if you pitch enough yeast, yep. keep it cold the whole time, you won't even produce much to know, and you don't have to do the cleanup and rest. It just, and and it's, it's such a cleaner, better beer if you don't have to go up in the temperature. And uh, another guy, in Doug Hasker in San Diego, was really, he slapped me and said, you're a stupid ale brewer. Ne- you never have to go up. And even even at the end of fermentation, when you think it's done, if you still go up, you're still, still, produ- still producing a little bit of esters and flavors. So keeping it nice and low and cold the whole time is the key. Interesting. Talk to talk a little bit about uh, carbonation and spunding then. I don't do it. No. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I think we. I mean, the best way to do it is just to do it. You don't need a fancy spooning valve. I mean, Jeff does it. You don't need a fancy spooning device to to capture natural CO2. It's just about understanding when you can actually close up that tank and actually keep that CO2 that was escaping out in the atmosphere and putting it back into your back into your lager. Um, and again, that's just a time, temperature, flavor character. Now, if you want to get super technical about it, you can. And you want to monitor things daily, hourly, you absolutely can. But, you know, I like to do a lot more of this talking shit and drinking lager um, as much as I like to make it. So, you know, uh, again, you don't need a spooning valve, but any amount of carbonation, any tiny amount of carbonation that you can capture is a worthwhile process. That little tiny bubbles that you're getting, even if you just end up putting head pressure on your tank over time and it naturally absorbs more, you'll have a finer bubble than you will if you are just purely force carbonating. So any amount of carbonation that you can get it to absorb while it's in its conditioning phases is, is a positive attribute. 100% agree with that. <laughs> and it's CO2 you don't have to pay for. Yeah. Check. Yeah. Like natural, it's, it's a little more difficult and takes a little time. But like she said, if you can just get a little in there, it's so nice. Yeah. When you talk about uh, Mexican lager and also American lager, uh, corn becomes a major ingredient in these, and the way that uh, lager brewers in the Americas use corn has been changing over the last few years, improving you know better corn products are available, um, more heirloom corn varieties are there. Whether those are good or bad, you know it's up to the brewer and how they use them. Talk to me a little bit about how you have been employing corn in addition to barley in lager making. Uh, so as a home brewer and BGCP guy, you know, they talk about be 20% corn, 10% corn per style. And so, okay, that's probably true in the big guys because at 20%, they're, wa- they're making an 8% lager and they're going to water back. So that 20% is not that strong and potent. If you made a craft lager with 20% corn, you're going to taste the crap out of that. It's a lot of corn. So They're also my, using corn syrup. They're, they're that too, absolutely. Right. Yeah, yep. But if you're doing it like it's... It, you really got to be light-handed on it on the adjuncts. They're there for a reason to use um, to bring complexity to some of these beers. But I think you can be too heavy-handed on a lot of that stuff, and a lot of people are when they make these uh, Mexican lagers with corn. It just it's too much. Ashley, you all just made a corn lager, or you over the last couple of years you have. Yeah, we make a corn lager. Um, our our goal when we make our corn lager, admittedly, is different than what you're uh, trying to do. We use an heirloom Oaxacan corn that we use is 40% of the grist. It's a lot. It but is. you're probably using a much higher quality corn than Yeah, yeah. Like so again, it, it depends on, I think, flake. you know, like what he's trying to do is make a lighter bodied, uh, you know, macro adjacent kind of sure. beer, but as a craft beer. Cool. And I think, yeah, is, I think it's an awesome, you know, when we make it, we wanted to do something a little bit different. Uh, we decided to take an ingredient and let that ingredient actually let that ingredient shine, but it had to be a high quality ingredient. I don't think I would do that with just a regular, yeah, like flake corn or whatever. So we actually get whole corn from Oaxaca uh, and we grind it ourselves and we do a cereal mash with 40% corn, 40% six row, 20% pills malt. 
Um, it's a very long day. The the runoff is actually pink, and it has a very interesting like fresh corn tortilla. Uh, without being DMSE kind of character, and it's been a really cool ingredient to use and to kind of let that ingredient like shine by itself. Um, it's not a beer I would want to have necessarily all the time, or and it doesn't really fulfill the light lager category. It is a the corn has a flavor, and we want that to actually shine. Actually, um, I don't know. Jeff uses corn. I was uh, gonna say. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> well, make make a couple. It's of really corn good, lagers. by the way. Um, we do make a beer called Corn Star, and uh, it's what I call it, like high quality malt liquor. So it started off as a collab with our friends at Sun King Brewery in Indiana, and I don't know if any of you guys know this, but a lot of Indiana is straight corn fields. So they brought over um, a couple of bags of heirloom popcorn, and. <laughs> The first batch we ever did was 50 pounds. Uh, we air popped it all and threw it into the mash. And it's, it's actually really cool. The flavor is insane. It's kind of a cross between like cotton candy and tortilla chips. It's really cool. Um, so that beer also has a large amount of flaked corn in it. It has a little bit of flaked rice and some six row and Pilsner malt, but it's Weirman Pilsner. So that's probably part of the, the high quality part. Overall, it's 25% corn. Um, so it's 7.8%. And as Ashley once told me, I was downright irresponsible for making that yeah. beer. Because <laughs> it's very, very easy to drink and you do not recognize at all that it's 7.8%. By the way, do you know how much 50 pounds of corn popcorn is? Oh, now it's 75 like it, uh, pounds of popcorn. It's like 10 trash bag. bags of popcorn. Yeah. It took us eight hours with multiple air poppers to pop all the popcorn. And actually, yeah, it's like the big, not just like a trash bag. It's like the big 50-gallon size trash bag. It's about 12 trash can or trash bags full of pop popcorn. And we get them, we do it all the night before so the popcorn doesn't get stale. And I think last year, the time between stop. When we finally finished popping the popcorn and when we started, the mash was only about four hours because it took so damn long. We thought Ashley's cereal cooking uh, brew day was a pain in the butt, but uh, there you go. He just went up there on that. <laughs> you both mentioned using six row in addition to uh, Pilsner malt in these. What? Why use that? What, what, do you, what does that add into this mix? Uh, well, for one thing, it helps with the conversion of the corn um also i don't know it just feels like it adds this character to that beer that it doesn't cheapen it's the wrong word but it adds this character and this element that that yeah it's i don't know it, it just fits <laughs> it's like a it's like this little extra thing that's you know if if we just use 100 percent pilsner malt the beer would not be the same it would not work the way that it does if we did not put six row in it. I think you probably feel the same way. Yeah. It helps the conversion, protein, all that kind of uh, stuff. And we make it very clear that ours is not a Mexican style lager. I just, we call it a corn lager. And I think that that's a pretty, in, uh, and you guys are mostly, you know, Mexican. I, I think this idea of calling something Mexican just because it has corn in it or Japanese just because it has rice in it. It's a very bizarre idea, and it doesn't really speak to, like, what the beer is. So, you know, ours is a yours is corn star, ours is a corn lager, yours is a, a Mexican Mine, I'm lager. trying to emulate the, yeah. the macros. I think those are three different ways to use corn that aren't just, like, saying it's a Mexican lager. What's the benefit of a cereal mash with this crazy heirloom corn versus, say, buying, uh, you know, flaked corn, something that's already been gelatinized? Uh, it's just the flavor of the corn that we're trying to get. And we have the ability. Our brew houses um, can do it. So I don't necessarily, again, you know, I'm going to go back to it. I love making beer. I love being a brewer, and I love the process of doing it. So to me, if even though I could use flake corn, I have the equipment to do a full cereal mass and gelatinize the corn ourselves and to really extract something different out of it. So, you know, that's the thing that excites me about it is, 
showcasing this singular ingredient. And we've done it with rice before in our brew house too, being able to gelatinize it. Um, basically, the, to gelatinize it, what we do is we take uh, the corn grits or the rice grits, depending on which one we're using, uh, grind it up, you know, soaks grits, it's ground up pretty finely, uh, mix it with extremely hot water. Gelatinization of corn is like uh, between 80 and 90 C or 75 and 85 C. Don't quote me exactly on that, but it's right around there uh, with a little bit of the six row um, for the enzymes. If not, it turns kind of pretty much just into polenta and it's very, very hard to stir and you hate your life because of it. But it's a really cool uh, to extract some different flavors out of and get full conversion out of it. Um, and then we just basically cool it down, add our malt back to it uh, and run through our regular temperature steps uh, like we were regular mashing in. So it's just kind of, we have the ability to do it. It's just a, a one more technique we have at our disposal. Sure. As we were judging today for the Copa Baja, um, I lucked out and got a, a European-style dark lager category, Vienna lagers, um, which also here in Mexico are Mexican dark lagers. Uh, feels like a great reason to talk about brewing dark lager from that Vienna style and other, uh, you know, other European inspired dark lagers talk about how your process of brewing dark and you're drinking dark lager right there ashley um talk about how your process of brewing dark iterations of your lagers whether those are european inspired or whether they're european through mexico inspired uh varies and where some of the process differences arise in brewing those dark lagers I, uh, so I would love to hear what Ryan has to say about making like Mexican style dark lagers. Cause I actually don't have a lot of experience with that. I make, I made mostly European. And when, um, I usually, I make Dunkel all the time. So to me, the key to Dunkel is still people look at it and think it's dark, but it should still be dry and drinkable. You should want to drink more than, more than one of them. Uh, when Jeff and I made Czech dark lager, uh, it's radical. I wouldn't say radically different, but it's very different than making German style lager. So if you really want to be true to the style, it's about figuring out what that is. And one of those big differences for me uh, and for us was like actually using Czech yeast to make that beer. And I think that that made a huge difference. You can't make Czech style beer with German yeast necessarily. They're different. They're a different, entirely different animal. Czech beer, Czech lagers are more satiating they're a little bit more unctuous. That's why they're so hoppy um, to kind of over, you know, like get over that like very sweet character. They need that hops to kind of balance that out. Um, but it's kind of looking at those two things. So when I look at a German style lager, I want it very clean. So we are just 75% Munich, kind of a mixture between Munich one and two and 25% pills. And then just a little bit of black malt uh, in the lauder to just kind of adjust for color. When we made Czech dark lager, it was, had crystal malt in it, which it makes me very uncomfortable. I don't love crystal malt, um, but it's necessary to the style. It also finishes much higher gravity and a quite a bit more black malt, almost 5% by weight of actual black malt that, again, we use the same way, though. We use the dark malt the same way by putting it on top of the lauder so we're not actually extracting any of those acrid characters. So I think there are some similarities between the two uh, European-style dark lagers that are similar to each other. They can be on the sweeter or drier side, uh, but they're actually very different techniques when you're making the two of them. Um, and so I guess it's just about, you know, not using the same technique for all different styles of beer because it doesn't necessarily translate from, from each style, even if they're all, you know, European. Wait, you mean you don't just name it a Czech style lager because it has Czech saws and, uh, and uh, Czech malt? No. <laughs> <laughs> Ryan, uh, when when you approach uh, Mexican dark lager, talk to us about so, your approach. I had a weird one because I had a friend of a friend who worked at the at Constellation, and I somehow illegally got the the recipe for Negro Modelo. <laughs> but again, they're making tell. they're making eight percent lager and they're watering it down. So the recipe that I got would not work for making it percentage by percentage and and those ingredients. And they use some crystal malt. They use some chocolate malt. And the inter most interesting thing is I found there it was an ingredient called Constellation Malt. And the guys at Ballast Point years ago, when they were, before they got purchased, I think, uh, they had a random malt called Constellation Malt. They didn't know what it was. And it was basically a six-row barley kernel that was steamed instead of kiln-dried or drum-roasted. So it was like a weird steamed caramel malt. It was like a crystal 40, basically. 
So I took that recipe and made it a, my same Mexican lager base with adding a little of that crystal, steam crystal 40 and a touch of cinnamar. And that was the jam right there. That was perfect. You get enough of that crystal malt character without being a crystal malt so it wasn't so oxidized or having like the uh, figgy or, I wouldn't say metallic, but figgy or plummy prune cherry notes. The steam malt did, or steam, how they do that process is a way a rad way to do it. And um, just a color change with cinnamar. Where do you get steam processed six row? Uh, I think, Bree, uh, not, not Breeze, but Great Western's got one, I think, now too. Okay. Yeah. It's a, it's a great, it's a, that's a cool malt that you could use in an IPA to not use crystal malt, but still have a little color and some, like, some golden color to it, you know, light-handed. We've definitely seen some more of that steam process yeah. hitting other kinds of malt varieties too, which, you know, especially on that brown ale side is sure. creating some interesting options. So interesting to see that as a process. Um, I was going to yeah. add one thing talking about satiating Czech lager versus more drier, crisper German style dark lager is uh, back to water. Um, Czech beers have. The water has a higher amount of residual alkalinity, which will lend to that more rounder body, that more satiating flavor, whereas the Germans hate residual alkalinity. So their beers are much more crisper and, and drier. And so it's something to think about if you're an, another option you have to use in your arsenal to, to look at your water and go, okay, well, if, if I'm heading more towards a Czech style, maybe I, I really want to figure out how to get some residual alkalinity in my water, or if I'm going in for Schwarzbier or Dunkel, um, how to keep that re residual alkalinity lower or even negative, <laughs> as, as in most cases with their, those lager beers. Just another difference between the two. On the Mexican side, I have no idea. I would think, having tasted them, I would think more German, just with the European heritage on Western Europe rather than more Eastern, but... Yeah. Sure, sure. Well, it's it's closing in on 11 o'clock now. We've been judging all day long. We've been enjoying the hospitality of our hosts here at the Copa Baja. Um, let's close this with just you know, a broad question. If you're thinking about brewers here who are making their lagers or thinking about making lagers, especially those ale brewers that are considering you know, developing this, what are, say, three key things you know, that, that they should be paying attention to to make the highest quality lagers they possibly can. And we can start with you, Ryan. Uh, water, definitely. Pitch rate and ice cold. Well, you know what? I'm going to go back to my first comment. Dropping the trube cone. Like, I hate italicis in a lager. My God, just get that yeast off that beer, the beer off that yeast. <laughs> Top three. Uh, <laughs> ingredients, meaning malt and hops, water, um, I guess is also an ingredient. Um, third pH throughout. I'm going to agree with Ryan. Pitch rate um, slash yeast. Uh, but I'm going to give you two other things that are easy, but a lot of people don't think about, is your liquor to grist ratio. So how much water to malt you're using. And it shouldn't be the same as your IPAs and your ales. We're like, a f if you can, a four to one, four and a half to one liters to kilos. Um, you would be surprised how much, how many things you can change by just changing that one parameter. Uh, your fermentability will increase. Uh, you know, there's, there's a, some interesting things that happen. You might have a harder time running off depending on your brew house. You might have to change your mill setting slightly to a little bit uh, higher crush. But that's just one parameter that I don't think a lot of people think about changing that you can change without having to have any special equipment. Um, and then the other one is uh, stop putting late hops into your uh, some of your lagers. Um, just because you always use a 20, uh, 20 minute hop edition and a whirlpool edition uh, 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 Dunkel uh, Less is more. Yeah, less <laughs> is more. So start thinking about your hops. Don't get on the same thing that you do always do because you always do it. Uh, start to think about why you're actually doing it. And so, you know, some of these beers just need enough hops, like 10 IBUs, in order to balance the sweetness of, of the malt. So just that idea of just balancing that beer in the way it should be. So thinking about your hops a little bit different. Sometimes they only need one edition. Don't be scared by only using one edition. 
it's sometimes is your friend uh, and keep it early. So those are kind of my, those are my three things. Yeah. All right. Well, thank you, Ryan Brooks, Jeff Bagby, Ashley Carter. Thanks for talking with me about lager brewing. Thank you. And thank, thank you, you uh, thank to you. our friends here at Copa Baja for making this conversation possible. Thanks to Bill for bringing us beer. Yes, Chicali. thank you, Bill. That's all for Mexicali. Many thanks to Ashley, Jeff, and Ryan for joining me for this talk about lager brewing. Choose G&D Chillers on your next expansion or brewery startup and receive one free year of remote control and monitoring. ProBrew's engineering team prides itself on providing true customized turnkey solutions. Old Orchard is the go-to source for fruit forward ingredients for some of the biggest names in the craft brewing landscape. Omega Yeast's Diacetyl Knockout Series is comprised of eight familiar yeast strains engineered to knock out the formation of diacetyl before it starts. ABS Commercial are proud to offer brew houses, tanks, keg washers, and preventative maintenance parts to brewers across the country. SS Brewtech is dedicated to an engineering-first approach to brewery equipment and powers R&D at some of the world's greatest breweries. Christian Hansen's Smart Bev range of frozen liquid yeast and freeze-dried bacteria allows for consistent performance and high quality. And don't miss the 2024 California Craft Beer Summit, March 12th through 14th in Sacramento. If you've enjoyed this podcast, go to beerandbrewing.com, click on that subscribe button. If you are an industry professional, uh, consider our industry all-access subscription that uh, combines some real value. That's a subscription to Craft Beer and Brewing Magazine, our Brewing Industry Guide magazine, um, our video program uh, for Craft Beer and Brewing video classes. Now also includes access to our video classes and exclusive web content on spiritsanddistilling.com for those that are making that crossover into the distilling world as well. Lots of value right there with the industry all-access subscription. If you're a brewery and planning, we have a brewery workshop, New Brewery Accelerator, coming up in Austin in March. Check out information on that at breweryworkshop.com. And of course, if you're asking, why would anyone open a brewery right now? Uh, I think that's the point. If you are interested in doing it, you need to have all the tools at your disposal to make a successful business of it. And this uh, four-day workshop is geared towards giving you those tools. We'll be back next week with Jason Thompson of Calusa Brewing. But until then, support your local brewery through this difficult month of dry January. Order a non-alcoholic hop water if you must. Get out there and show breweries and other beer venues, beer bars, and the like some love. Until next week, cheers. This podcast has been brought to you by Craft Beer and Brewing Magazine for those who love to make and drink great beer. To learn more or to subscribe, visit beerandbrewing.com or find us on social media at Craft Beer Brew.